Welcome to this edition of the Magazine Debrief. This week we are looking at the 20th of November issue. And as usual, I'm joined by Gronya Hallahan. Hi, Gronya. Hello. And Dan Worth. Hi, Dan. Hello. And let's get started. Okay, so the first feature this week we are looking at is the cover feature by um, a director of music. And it's talking about failure and why... A little failure is good for learning. Now, me and Martin were discussing education research around the fact that it's optimal for every child to get about 15 to 20% of any task wrong. And that's actually better for learning than getting something 100% right or 50% wrong. Um, So teachers tend to pitch their content, their level of difficulty to ensure that that around that figure is, is hit. But Martin had the idea of saying, well, hang on, are we, are we aiming too low? What if we pitched a lot higher? What if I taught, I aim to teach the kids in year seven, something that's normally taught at university level? Have I got any chance of hitting 85%? And if I don't hit 85%, will learning actually be a lot worse? And his conclusion is actually, no, that not every child did hit hit 85%, but the ones that didn't still learned more, he believed, than in his normal run of lessons, which raises a lot of interesting points, um, which we could discussed now so in terms of pitching difficulty Gronya, i mean when you were a teacher how, i mean the task of setting a difficulty level for 30 kids i mean differentiation is a big issue but surely you're, it's a best fit most of the time anyway right i mean you're always trying to design design tasks that are doable and i think a lot of the time in teaching you're especially in subjects like english or perhaps history where it's it's not as easily like quantifiable when you're, especially when you're marking that idea of trying to get like that 85% success, like, achieve, like being achievable in the, in the test, that's quite difficult. And you're not, sometimes you can set something that you totally think that all of them can do. And when you collect in the books, there's like only one or two that you even feel like were even in the room when you were teaching. And that's mm. not that unusual. I think a lot of teachers feel like that, especially at the beginning of a topic. So I think the, what really struck me with this is the the difficulty in that teaching isn't always you can't always be that exact about it but the idea of setting really challenging work and students rising to that that high challenge I think definitely rings true and that 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 was really reassuring to know that he also found that that was a successful strategy because it's something that I think is is really lovely to do with a class especially when they know what they're doing is exceptionally hard I think one of the things that came out for me as well is that he you know, his, his message was essentially you can plan a lot, but you really need to react to what's in, what's in front of you. And he, he said the value of peer learning was huge. The value of allowing different interpretations to his own was huge. The, the value of very close attention to constant feedback was really important. So testing them and saying, okay, where are they now? I mean, wow, they're a bit further along than I thought or a bit close, but that's quite, quite a distinct way of teaching and not everyone's uh, what should we say? Not everyone's <laughs> a fan of such a sort of, I guess, um, manufactured yeah. uh, route into learning. That sort of like intense, continual reflection on what's what's been happened and where they are, and trying to track everybody. Because of course, progress isn't like a nice, neat line of like a diagonal plot on the graph. It can it sometimes can be interrupted by too much assessment because you're not allowing the information to be embedded before you're testing it. There's that like perfect time of waiting after teaching before you assess. But I don't know, it's, it's also a tricky one because being that child in the class who it's all gone over your head and you, you're, you're never going to do it, 
that's a that's a pretty rubbish position to be in as well isn't it I mean I can I don't know about you two but I can definitely remember classes I, I was on triple science GCSE humble brag um but um I remember a class on moles or I can't even say it properly but I remember sitting in that lesson just going I have absolutely no idea what's going on mm. I remember I mean I had that with AS level French I was quite good at GCSE French when it was to my memory, at least, it was primarily vocabulary. And I was quite good at just remembering the words. And then AS level, it seemed to shoot up. I remember feeling completely out of my depth. That's quite the same thing we're talking about here. But I remember that that feeling of what is going on. Yeah. What, what I liked about the feature, what, what's, I think it's a good point to make, is that the feature's talking about music theory. And some of the boys he works with already have music knowledge coming into it. And some of them don't. Whereas, I don't know if you did it, say, with history or geography. Like, why would, you know, it's not going to be the average child that's going to come in with a good historical knowledge of, you know, the Second World War, really, in a way that they might with music. But I really like this idea of sometimes you should pitch content like way above the levels because it's not really going to go in or be how you teach the class ongoingly. But I like the idea that, and I think it's probably dry, sort of, I think it probably happened to me, is that you may not understand something then, but it will kind of lodge in your brain somewhere. And then in X years' time, that thing, you just think, oh, I know that, or oh, I've heard about that. And it's not, and it's so it's like, because again, the teacher's sort of, they're not just following the script. They're, they're, they're doing what they need to do to teach you, but then they spend that five minutes going, right, I'm now going to explain to you about something really complex. And I know it's not going to go in, but it might go in in a way that in five years' time will manifest in a different way. And I, I like that. And I think that's what the feature does show a little bit is that really complex stuff can go in and it may not come out immediately, but it will be there in one form or another. Do you know who else loves that? Fan of Tez, friend of Tez, Mark Roberts. He loves teaching really complex um, vocab, um, complex uh, literary terms. And he knows mm. that students won't, they won't remember the names of them. They're really upset. I don't remember the names of all of them, but they might recognize that that's an interesting thing to do. And it is like, it's a thing. And they'll try and do that in their own writing because they're appreciating the the flair that you can have with language and the way that you can play with language. So it's exactly that, isn't it, Dan? You might not get the whole of the idea, but you might get part of the idea. And that part is a really important part still. Mm. There's a lot of, um, I remember talking to Robert Bjork, uh, a a name drop, um, who's the master of memory, as I like to call him. Um, He was telling me about the fact that he was doing some research around priming. So actually at the start of a topic, you give the kids a test. If they get naught out of, 10 nor out of 20 it doesn't actually matter that much they actually end up learning more at the end of the module because i mean the, the science of it is not that clear at the moment but they've almost been primed the 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 synapses in the brain have, uh, have have been primed ready to receive the knowledge and i think there's a lot in that where actually and there's a there's a motivational angle as well isn't there it's flattering to be given uh, uh, content just above what you, you know, well, quite way above what you're capable of. And I think that can't be underestimated as well. But as you say, like we both sat in lessons and went, Christ, what's happening? And I was probably demotivated at that point rather than motivated. And there's probably a, a Goldilocks point in, in mm-hmm. there yeah. where you pitch slightly at the, you know, it, and it, it, you know, the research suggests it's 85%. I'm not convinced for everything 85% is right. I think one of the guy's students, um, who wrote a bond of the boxes for the feature made the point that actually it depends on the topic. You can't pitch the difficulty level because actually if you really love something, if you know, I love, you know, I'm getting quite into my woodwork guys. Um, and I'm looking at stuff thinking I could never do that, but I'd quite happily have a success rate of 4%, but I just love the process of trying to do one of those lovely joints. 
But what's interesting there is if you went to a teacher, a woodworking expert, and he said to you, right, we're going to make this thing, and that you thought, I've got no chance of that, him alone saying we're going to do it, and you think, well, he's saying we're going to do it, why would he say that if he didn't think I could do it? And I, you know, you know, humble bragging away, I, I play piano and I have piano lessons. And the other week I was, I said to my teacher in passing, I said, oh, I was looking at the intro to something that, you know, it's really complicated, a Debussy piece. And he said, no, we could do that. We could practice that. We could learn that. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, just take it piece, you know, one piece, one bit at a time and we'll do it. And him saying that really struck me because I thought, well, if he thinks I can do it and he's, well, I've worked with him for a couple of years and he's really good. And I thought, okay. And it immediately changed my mindset. I sat down and looked at it again, like I can do this and I'm just going to take it slowly piece yeah. by piece and i think that's a good one so good about this feature it shows that you know it's not gonna happen overnight but just practice 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 and do it, do it, do it. and obviously a teacher can't do that they've got to follow the curriculum but you can sort of weave it in i suspect at times yes like with model paragraphs and things like that when you're modeling to students and how to how to analyze that's exactly what you do you give them a a, a really good exemplar and then you pick it apart and you get them to practice it and you, you do that in a, in a range of different subjects but yeah it's um yeah the lovely process oh, to go through yeah, and it's a great read from Martin. He, he's got a, a very entertaining style of writing, and it's it's he's a he's a great storyteller actually. So um, so check that one out. Okay, we're going to go for the tricky area of behaviour, and it's not just the tricky area of behaviour. We're going to go for the big beast of behaviour, aren't we, Dan? We're going to talk about the scary teacher. Yes. Now, this is a piece by uh, Luke Marsden, and it's only a short sort of column, but it covers a very big area. And he's sort of quite honest talking about how he he comes to work in a school where he realises that he has to be the scary teacher. He has to be the one that the pupils fear more than any other. And he he's never had that role before. He's always been the one who, who you know was nice to his pupils and encouraged them and helped them. Another teacher played that role and it, to the point where he never even realised it was a role that was needed before. And then when he got there and thought, well, no one here is setting the discipline and being, you know, sort of relentlessly picking them up on behavioural matters. I have to be that teacher because if I don't, these I'm getting interrupted all the time. They're not listening. They're not following the lesson. And it really struck me because I thought I can remember lots of teachers like that who at the time you really thought, oh, God, they're so irritating. They won't stop. You know, they're always spotting your shirts untucked. They're always, you know, telling you off for, for running in the corridors, whatever. And you just thought, oh, you know, get a life. And you look back and you realise that was such a hard job because they probably knew no one liked them as a result. You know, the children, pupils didn't like them. Probably the people, the teachers loved them. Um, but that's a role that has to be played. And I also like the fact that um, just lately I've been having conversations with people about exactly this, about the way that that sort of strict teacher, you look back with a kind of awareness of what they did for you and the school once you get older. And so like Luke doing this, it's like he might not enjoy doing it in school, but he's actually, you know, it's a really important role to take on. Yeah, I think what struck me as well is that articulation that the 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 teacher that we think rules by fear is actually still ruling by relationships in mm. the sense that yes. they're not scared of the teacher hitting them or you know there's this there's this notion that the monster teacher is this physically imposing person and or or psychologically manipulative when actually it's just a teacher that gives a child that extra attention that they want but the payoff for that is good behavior. And I often one of the lines in the piece is that, you know, as the beast of behavior that you've made it, if it feels like when a teacher reports that child to the beast, of behavior, it's like telling their mum. And I, mm. I thought that was the key is that actually it's relationship, it's relationships based. It's not fear based. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, again, it's, it's so sort of true, isn't it? That when those teachers pick up on pupils like that, it's annoying. But then if they also do something nice to them, it suddenly means even more because it's sort of all that one usually stern teacher is suddenly being friendly. But it doesn't mean that they're then going to you know, slack off in, in picking you up when your shirt's untucked. But it has that exactly, exactly that sort of psychotomy of harsh but 
fair or you know that, that kind of um that kind of mindset that a lot of teachers bring and you need that in a school you need the teacher who instills the fear in the pupils again maybe fear is a, it's a heavy word to use isn't it but we know what we mean it's the, the teacher who, if you see them come across the the playground or whatever you immediately think oh is my tie done up probably my shirt tucks in because you know then they're not going to miss it and you don't know every teacher can do that because then it'd be a nightmare school to be at but you need that one or two teachers depending on how big the school is who they are that's their job whether they've taken it on by organically because they love being strict or because they sort of felt looked around and thought well no one else here is doing it i don't know but the, it's a hard, one of the hardest roles to play i think and like like luke in his feature talks about how he didn't want to do it but he's doing it and i think you know it shows that it matters i think um from previous podcasts we know that gronya is probably quite likely to be that beast of behavior were you you know you're quite harsh on kids from previous anecdotes i feel really misrepresented there i don't think i was I don't think I come across like that at all. I um, let's, let's go back to was it episode one where you, you had a vote on whether a child was weird? <laughs> so weird. That's not really behaviour though, is it? That's just that's bullying. Just, that was a mistake. I, I gave that as an example of something I shouldn't. Yes, you done. did. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Sorry, um, I misrepresented you there. But yeah, yeah, go go for it. Tell us okay, about so, you know your experience with the beasts of behaviour. So I remember when I moved from um, one school to another and found that 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 whole like beast behaviour was quite. I really felt for for the for, um the, the teacher in this blog because it's it is really difficult when there's no like bad guy to send the kids to and you've got to be the bad guy because I like kids liking me shock there you go John <laughs> and um it was a real change to go from one school where I'd left and the kids had covered my desk with like we love you miss please don't go you're our favorite teacher post-it notes to having to be like mean to the kids in the new school and there's part of it is you're establishing yourself establishing yourself as a new teacher and you're letting them get to know you and you want to, them to know that you know you're not going to let them walk all over you etc etc but when you when you don't have consistency isn't this piece a really great a great call to have centralized attentions to have consistency yeah. across the across the school and not put all of it on the classroom teacher because because if it's all on you it is exhausting and it's not fair and you never get a chance to be the nice person and then when does the teaching happen like you you need to have a chance to just be able to teach and to pass behavior things deal with it yourself but have the consequences delivered and backed up and supported and it's it's not it's not fair to expect teachers to to deal with all of it can i ask you a question yes the myths around the beast of behaviors like in our school, there's this myth that the, the, the I won't name the teacher, but there's this myth that he'd thrown someone out of a window at the top of C block. Mm. And it was so clearly not true. <laughs> but so everyone I had a sort of believed it. Who, um, who would actually, th- she, in the old, in, back in the day, she would throw the board rubber at people. And she was a music teacher and she once threw a keyboard. And I, it must have happened like to somebody's brother's friends, mate. But it, it was, and she loved, she loved that rumor. Um, and she was, she was really mean. I'm in my register. We, she left the room, and we all went like a bit crazy, as you do in your kids. And I remember looking in the, her her mark book, and next to my name, she'd written, "Is she thick?" <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <And> <laughs> Is this you telling me the myths are not myths that? That teacher I think really there's always a grain of truth, isn't there? I think generally in these sort of things, there's always a grain of truth in it. That, that is, I am um, when I first started teaching, the, the teacher who was in charge of the trainee trainee teachers and NQTs in the school. He gave a um, like a CPD session, and he advocated that that old fashioned idea of you do something really, like you go crazy about something really small early doors, so that they think that you're a little bit psycho. 
I'm thinking that's a, that's an interesting approach. Um, but yeah, I, I, I definitely knew some teachers who did that, but then forgot to tone it down afterwards and just maintain <laughs> that level throughout. Played at psycho level. But I think, yeah. you know, it, there's that with any class, if somebody, even with the nicest, most lovely classes, if somebody does do something outrageously wrong and hurts another student or in some way insults another student, you need those kids to see you tell that child off so they know that it's wrong and that it's not going to, that they can feel safe in the class. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. You're saying that even when you have that external, uh, again, it's a heavy word, but the external threat that even in, that's not enough. If there is a safety, that child still needs to feel safe with you as a teacher, not just because there's someone down the corridor who threw someone out of the C block once. (laughs) So as as a final point, it makes me think, are there, there must, maybe someone should write this, is that are there teachers out there who were the beast of of, um, behaviour, arrived at their new school and realised there were many beasts there already and had to adapt and become like one of the nice teachers, one of the softer teachers, one of the ones who they could run to for comfort because they thought, well, if I'm just another one of these beasts, the school is overrun with beasts Hard to you get a beast off beast. but surely the, the, the person the, the author of this article is saying they've not, they not changed their personality but they've, they've taken on a role to play yeah. in the school you know they like i say surely you know you could do the other one you could go anything oh, actually i need to be nice to these kids because i know that three other teachers are already giving them what for when they tracks cross the line and if every teacher does that surely it becomes a you know a, not a nice environment yeah i think that's possibly one we should get some uh people tweeting us and um, emailing us about yeah, if you if you have arrived in a school where there's too many beasts and you've had to step back because you know you're the reasonable one among them and uh, become become a well a dove sort of, yeah a do- yeah maybe a dove um, please let us know Okay, so from the uh, beasts of the classroom to sex education, and I, I can't think of a decent transition there, unfortunately. So I'm just going to go hand straight over to you, Grania. <laughs> so this is a piece for the FE section in the magazine, and so it's looking at sex education for our post-16 students. Um, I looked at the new relationships and sex education guidance when we did a whole speech on it last February, um, and. This, was re- this really surprised me because, of course, in post-16, there's absolutely no requirement for schools, colleges to deliver relationships and sex education to their students, which just seems a little, a little bit crazy when you think they're the ones that are actually old enough and legally able to engage in sexual relationships. But we, we get them all prepared when they're small and they're young and then we just leave them to it. But of course, colleges are far more responsible than that and they do still deliver uh, sex and relationships curriculum for their students and we looked at what good ones look like and how to how to execute it well there's a there's some horrible stats isn't there in this piece oh should we not dwell on the stats the stats are quite scary we need to talk about the stats because it just proves the point that perhaps this sex education before the age of 16 Perhaps they need a bit more, let's say that. (laughs) They definitely need a bit more. So we can see that in um, young people that they're a category really high high at risk for STIs, they're high at risk for unwanted pregnancies, and they're the ones that need the signposting to their general practitioners and sex sex clinics and to especially things like the morning after pill, if that's what's the child, if that's what the person wants to take, they need to know where it where they can get it because of course time is is really pressing when it comes to things like that yeah and i think 
it does, the more you think about it, the more bonkers it is that, you know, RST curriculum's changing and that's going to become compulsory in, um, at Easter, it, it, you know, depending on the pandemic. But there will be children going into college, becoming adults who haven't had the greatest experience of sex ed oh, um- and then are becoming sexually active with no guidance and we we can't leave it to the internet because you know so many year sixes lost out on their relationships and sex education where they actually find out you know where babies come from because when the coronavirus caused the lockdown and the school and they weren't going to school many of them they weren't set it as remote learning that would be um some home learning i wouldn't i wouldn't (laughs) i'm a dread (laughs) you're just gonna palm it all off onto the teachers sex ed sorry go and ask Go and ask Mrs. Smith. In, you know, I'm not doing sex ed. So I'm not doing you. that. I'm not answering these questions. Um, so, yeah, they missed out on it. And there will be year 11s who didn't get their full component before starting um, sixth form college or uh, a further education college. And, yeah, it's and the one of the interesting interviews, one of the things that came up was that you need to look at your cohort. You need to look where they've come from. Have they had a lot of time out of school? Are they um, looked after children? Have they had quite a disrupted um, secondary education? There'll be some, some students who'll be, who haven't had anything, and it's really important that that's addressed. Yeah, and I think the scary thing is that this isn't compulsory, and I think mm. the best will in the world for colleges you know, some people were doing it in tutor time, weren't they? Some were doing it as drop down yeah. days, yeah. but it's still voluntary. Those those kids, uh, those young adults don't have to be there. And well, so, interesting though, the take up is really high. So I think that's that's really reassuring. I don't know why it's not compulsory. I think it should be compulsory. Yeah, but it's an interesting point. You said take up high. So there, there, there's a hunger for knowledge there. Yeah. The difference between you know whether you agree with the RSE curriculum or or not surely it's good that there's some consistency across schools i think i mean you want to know that every child is having the same opportunity of being educated to the same level and i think that's the danger if i'm allowed to give my personal opinion here Mm. of leaving it to parents is that you just you know there's an obligation there to a child to make sure they have the basics. Yeah. Well, as your, as, as all our experiences will demonstrate, we don't also probably have very good knowledge of it, you know, of actually being able to teach these things and understanding the, the nuances of the different terms, the terminology and how do you explain it and, and how do you teach it? You know, not, not just to sort of say out loud, I think, well, I've done the job. That's not teaching. The teaching is, a, is knowing how to structure information in a way that is learned. So that's what, I mean, and obviously teachers and people in FE colleges have enough to do, but if you make it part of, you know, the legal requirement, which it, yeah, I, I mean, why isn't after 16 is just, it must be crazy. It seems a bit crazy. We definitely should get experts in. I I think I did a really lousy job of teaching sex ed when I was when I was asked. Well, I'm yeah. I mean, the teacher did it for us in our school. I remember one lesson which happened with a kind of hush hush. Oh God, you know, today it's the sex ed lesson. It was our French teacher. I remember. I vaguely remember it being very awkward and not really. I don't remember much about it at all. And that was it. And that was probably when we were about fourteen. I don't remember anything after in in sixth form or anything like that when it would have been more useful. French yeah, I don't know why he did it. Yeah, maybe, but it's just, it just seemed like you do, you need to do it. Why we don't teach it and in the same way that, you know, why we don't teach financial literacy, you know, what does a pay packet mean? How does taxation work on a basic, you will encounter this in your life. You need to know this stuff. I just think, well, that's, you know. I think I do do financial literacy. No, they, they probably do more now, but I think yeah. it's like, it, um, it's not just the teacher should just fit this in on the side. It's more like they should, you know, we should make it part of the curriculum and therefore it becomes sort of 
you, you naturally have the time to teach it, but it's almost like, this is life, right? You can't avoid these things after school. So when's the best time to learn about them? When you're young. You know, the, Not- worst, the, yeah, the worst thing I was asked to explain in sex ed, re-ejaculation. And my, my metaphor was, you know, you've got a ketchup bottle. Like a bottle of <laughs> <laughs> I like watery stuff that comes out at the start. My, my, my head's in my hands. Going, I'm, I, you there was no trigger warning for this. this yeah, I mean, yeah, we were talking about financial literacy. And then, <laughs> and then, then look what happened. I mean, it's too good clearly, no, but all clearly neither me or, me or Dan would manage a PSHE lesson of any description because we've well, both, not if I, no. we've both just shrunk into our isn't seats. That, isn't that a dreadful, dreadful analogy I came up with? Like, I think it's really important for teachers to... Um, to be trained or to get external speakers in. I'm all for getting the external speakers in. Mm. They know what they're doing. They can do it. I think you're being quite hard on yourself. I mean, you were put in a position, at least you answered the question. So. I gave my best shot. Um, before we go, we've had two recent pieces from uh, about what a, what a partner of a teacher can do to make a teacher's life easier one was from the partner of a teacher and one was from a teacher themselves and they differed quite a lot so as an ex-teacher Ronya, and as the partner of a current teacher if i said what three things do you think would make pat's life easier that you could do uh what would it be um so my top tips if you've got a teacher partner Put the term dates in your diary, in your calendar, so you know when the end of terms are and you can track that with their moods. And you can see, you know, as they get more stressed and tired at the end of term, you can be more you know, in support and think about the fact that you've only got so far until the end of term. And you can do nice things on the, the half-term holidays. So plan nice things for them because often they'll be too tired to think about planning nice things for themselves to do during the holidays because they're going to be so worn out and so tired and um always provide them with mugs so so you're saying half t- know when the half terms are yeah plan nice things and buy them a mug yeah so they've always got mugs to take into work keep your nice one your nicest ones at home but give them like semi-decent ones they can take into school and risk being stolen but do you think pat's going to agree that these are the the three best things you could do for a teacher partner. It did just seem he's just shaking his head like <laughs> what else could you do really? You can't, you can't do their marking. Oh actually you can write their UCAS references for them and check all their emails for spelling mistakes. Well that's I mean that that's a good one I guess. But you do have something called spell check for, for, for that one. But okay, we could we could we could turn teacher partners into spell checkers of course. <laughs> well on on that amazing example of generosity from from Gronya to her hardworking uh, teacher husband who's teaching through a pandemic doing heroic things and the best she can come up with is plan something nice and give them a mug uh, we'll leave you and uh, see you next see you next week where we're going to be talking about whether there's such a thing as a natural learner <laughs> <laughs>